Right, so very happy to have this conversation today with you, Donald uh, Robertson. Um, so this is part of this uh, collaboration between your podcast and the Breakthrough Press podcast from our new student publication that was launched here uh, last week at the University of Strathclyde mm -hmm. in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, for some of our listeners who might not uh, know who you are, uh, Donald Robertson is a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, uh, author, um, and trainer. Uh, Donald, you are the author of seven books on philosophy and psychotherapy, including How to Think Like a Roman Emperor and the more recent uh, Verisimus, uh, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. Um, could you, first of all, uh, give us a brief definition of what Stoicism is? Stoicism is and what it stands for? Well, first of all, let me say uh, it's a pleasure to be here speaking to you today, uh, especially because of the Scottish connection. Um, so I'll give you two answers to your question. One is what is Stoicism historically and then what is what does Stoicism teach? So Stoicism is a school of Greek philosophy, kind of, although it was actually founded by a Phoenician immigrant to Athens in 301 BC called Zeno of Citium. He came from the island of Cyprus originally. And it's related to the earlier philosophy of Socrates, which it draws on pretty heavily. And so it's part of the Socratic tradition in Western philosophy. And it survived as an ancient school of philosophy for about 500 years. It's a pretty long time. Uh, most of the writings that we have come from later Stoics in the Roman Empire, basically. And uh, the writings of the earlier Stoics are largely lost apart from fragments. So I'll just mention some names because your listeners might have heard of them. Um, the main Stoics whose writings survive are Seneca, who's kind of topical at the moment because the trailer just came out a few days ago for the movie Seneca starring John Malkovich that's about his life and his relationship with Emperor Nero. Seneca was a, an advisor and a speechwriter for Emperor Nero. We have many letters from him. Then there's Epictetus, who was arguably the most important teacher of philosophy in Roman history, uh, arguably, certainly one of the most important. And we have many discourses of his that were written down actually by one of his students. And then there's the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who is very famous. He was portrayed by Richard Harris in the first act of the movie Gladiator featuring Russell Crowe. And actually, funnily enough, there's another movie coming out, Gladiator 2, has been written um, and is in the or is in the process of being writing, written at the moment. It's been greenlit uh, by the studio. Um, so maybe we'll hear a little bit more about Stoicism and Marx release when that movie comes out as well. And then also a kind of honourable mention goes to Cicero, who was not a Stoic, but is one of our main sources for Stoicism. He's a very educated man, a Roman statesman, one of the most important orators in history. And he'd studied Stoicism, although he followed the academic school of philosophy, a rival school of philosophy. So a lot of the information that we have about Stoicism comes from Cicero. So that's a potted history of Stoicism. And then what does Stoicism teach? Stoicism, first and foremost, is a virtue ethic. And it, it was a big philosophy that taught many different uh, things uh, because it spanned 500 years and many people contributed to it. But the essence of the philosophy is that virtue is the only true good. 
And virtue is understood as a character trait and actually a form of wisdom, a form of knowledge or moral wisdom. Um, And the Stoics consider that to be the only absolutely intrinsically good thing in life. And everything else in life has value, but it's of secondary value, a derivative value compared to our supreme goal, which is to develop reason and wisdom in daily life. Now, that's the core of the philosophy. It's an, the core of the philosophy is an ethic, but it has an obvious psychological uh, implication. So if you imagine someone who really genuinely believed that their own character was the most important thing in life and other things were only of secondary value, um, so for example, wealth and reputation um, are not intrinsically valuable. What matters is how you use them whether you use them wisely or foolishly, that person, you would think, would be more emotionally resilient because if they lost their wealth or their reputation was damaged, it wouldn't be the end of the world to them. What would matter more to them would be how they responded to that. And that's one of the part of the legacy of Stoicism. It left us with some writings and ideas that are obviously very relevant today and people are drawn to because they offer the promise of greater psychological resilience in the face of adversity. And so the word stoicism has almost kind of become synonymous with resilience in many people's minds. But underlying that is actually a big philosophy that has a a set of moral values, an ethical worldview at its core. So about the uh, psychological aspect of it, um, if we come to what you've been studying as well um, in the past years, um, what is cognitive behavioral therapy and how does this differ, differ from applying stoic principles to one's life? Well, cognitive behavioral therapy evolved out of behavior, an earlier approach called behavior therapy. And it really didn't really become prominent in the mainstream until around about the 1980s, actually, although it began developing in the late 1950s, somewhat earlier. And cognitive behavioral therapy evolved partly out of disillusionment with earlier psychotherapy approaches, like Freudian psychoanalysis and its derivatives. And it was based on emerging research on the emotions in the field of psychology. And cognitive behavioral therapy revolved around a cognitive model of emotion that says that our feelings, particularly problematic emotions like anger, depression, anxiety, are shaped to a large extent by our underlying beliefs and our patterns of thinking. And uh, the pioneers of cognitive therapy realized that the Stoics had said something very similar to this two and a half thousand years earlier. And indeed, these ideas go all the way back to Socrates and and beyond. So Albert Ellis, who was one of the earliest pioneers of cognitive therapy, he was a New York uh, psychotherapist. Uh, In the 1950s, Ellis was a psychoanalytic therapist originally, but became disillusioned with a more post-Freudian approach. And he decided to kind of, you know, set aside all his Freudian books or his psychoanalytic books and start again from scratch in the middle of his career. And he thought, I'm going to, I'm going to begin again and, and figure out a, a more down-to-earth, common-sense kind of approach to psychotherapy. And 
for inspiration, he looked to the Stoics, whom he'd read as a teenager. And he, in order to explain the cognitive model of emotion to his clients, so psychotherapists often have to take quite complex state-of-the-art research and put it into plain English in a way that, you know, a 15-year-old kid could understand or an old lady could understand or a bus driver could understand or, you know, whoever who happens to walk into your consulting room. Um, you have to make it relatable and relevant and understandable to the man on the Clapham omnibus, as we say, you know, any random person. Um, and so Ellis found himself quoting Epictetus. He said, it's not things that upset us, but rather our opinions about them. Um, there's a quote from a famous book called The Enchiridion of Epictetus, and it's central to Stoic psychology or psychotherapy, if you like. And Ellis just found that people understood that quote and they remembered it, although it happened to kind of encapsulate pretty much what the research was saying uh, about the cognitive appraisal, cognitive model of emotions. And so Ellis taught that quote to all of his clients, and he saw many thousands of clients, all of his students, and he mentions it in most of the books that he wrote. So by the time I started training in CBT, it was already a kind of cliche among cognitive therapists to say this. And uh, I thought, wow, cognitive therapists must be really into stoicism, right? My first degree was in philosophy, and then I got into training in counseling and therapy. And it came as a bit of a surprise to me to find that that was the only quote from stoicism that most CBT practitioners or cognitive therapists knew about. And I became doubly surprised when I dug deeper into stoicism and I realized stoicism already had an approach to psychotherapy because we tend to think of psychotherapy as a very modern thing. Um, but it's not, actually. It's, in a sense, one of the oldest disciplines in, in Western society. Um, not just that ancient authors kind of imply psychotherapy ideas, but they explicitly talk about a therapy of the psyche. And they wrote books on psychological therapy. For instance, um, the second, uh, th sorry, the third head of the Stoic school, Chrysippus, who's one of the greatest intellectuals of the ancient world, wrote a book called On Therapeutics, um, which is about Stoic psychotherapy, which is lost today. We only have fragments from it. But we have an entire book by Marcus Aurelius's physician, Galen, who is another polymath or uh, from the ancient world. And Galen wasn't a Stoic, but he'd read the Stoic books on psychotherapy. And he wrote a book called On the Diagnosis and Cure of the Soul's Passions, which is clearly a book about philosophical therapy. And so this was a familiar idea in the ancient world. Um, they call it therapia, uh, therapy of the psyche. And uh, I thought, I these CBT practitioners know this quote. It's really important to them. They teach it to all their clients. So it's really surprising that they haven't made more use of all the other therapy stuff that exists in Stoicism. And that inspired me really to begin writing about it and talking about it. You know, like anyone that comes up with a cool idea like that, something that gets excited about it, you, you, your first reaction is, is it just me? Like, am I the only person that, that thinks this is interesting? So I, luckily I, I was doing training and uh, workshops and I trained therapists in the UK. So I would be standing regularly in front all day long in front of, you know, 30, 40, 50 psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, life coaches, therapists, talking all day to them. And I'd talk to them about stoicism and I'd be like, is it just me? Like, do you guys think this is cool? And they wanted to hear more and more and more about it. 
So I thought, it's strange that there aren't more books written about stoicism for modern therapists. So I wrote one called The Philosophy of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. I wrote it almost 15 years ago, I think. It was 12, maybe 13 years ago. Um, and then, you know, that kind of launched me into being an author, I suppose, and uh, I've written more and more books since then. And Stoicism at that time, and I, I, I kind of hate having to say this because it sounds like when people say, you know, I was into this band before they were cool or something like that. But I, when I first got into Stoicism, no one was interested in it. It was, my friends told me it's a real niche subject. Um, it's a sort of obscure People, undergraduate philosophy students don't normally study Stoicism. I didn't study it in my philosophy. I studied Plato and Aristotle, but not the Stoics. Until after I graduated, I began to read them more. And uh, it was only really within a few years of that that more popular books began appearing, like Ryan Holiday's The Obstacle is the Way and William Irvine's uh, Guide to the Good Life. And then my own books came out. And, and now Stoicism is, as the young people say, a thing, particularly in some parts of the world. I spend a lot of time going between Canada and Athens and uh, in Greece still to this day, there's not that much interest in Stoicism, surprisingly. But in Toronto, in Canada, like I go and get my hair cut and uh, the barber will say, what are you doing today? And I'll say, oh, I'm working on a book and he'll say, what's it about? And I'll say, it's about Marcus Aurelius or whatever. And he'll say, oh, I've got a Marcus Aurelius tattoo or something, right? It's, it's kind of everywhere. Um, and these films that we mentioned that are coming out are probably just going to fuel that even more. So that's how I became interested both in stoicism and in cognitive behavioral therapy. So um, could you tell us a bit more about uh, your Scottish background and if that specifically had an influence on the path you chose um, and your present research? I think it did, but maybe in a kind of surprising way. So my Scottish background is that I am Scottish, as you people might guess. Um, although I haven't lived in Scotland for a really long time. Like I moved to England and and then I, I moved to Canada. Like I say, I spend a lot of time in Greece now. I go back to Scotland occasionally. Um, my family are Scottish. I was born in Scotland. I was born in Ayr and I grew up in Ayrshire on the west coast of Scotland. I went to university in Aberdeen, which is where I studied philosophy. Now, Scotland influenced me, I guess, in a surprising way because Ayrshire is Burns country. And when I grew up, I kind of got exposed to the poetry of Robbie Burns. And I, I didn't think much of it as a kid. I just thought, oh, geez, this is what all the old people are into. Like, you know, my, my friend's parents and stuff are into Robbie Burns. And, you know, when you're a kid, it's kind of like old stuff. It's corny or whatever. But I read it. I became familiar with it. And I gradually noticed there were bits of philosophy in Rabbi Burns. He's got a poem called Contented with Little, for example, that pretty much sounds like it could have been written by an Epicurean or a, a Stoic philosopher. And I think that may be because Burns is influenced partly by f philosophical themes in probably Latin poetry that he'd maybe read as a youth. And it sort of kind of filters down into his writing. He says in Tamashanter, his most famous poem, pleasures are like poppies spread, you seize the flower, it's bloomish shed, or like the snow falls in the river, a moment white then melts forever. So there are 
themes of transience are common in poetry. Um, these tropes find their way into Rabbi Burns, and that was the bits of Burns that I was interested in, and it kind of stuck with me. And then later, this is a bit of trivia for you, I guess, that I realized, I thought, did Burns know anything about the Stoics? Like, And I realized that Burns was quite good friends with a professor of philosophy at uh, in Glasgow, I believe, called Dougald Stewart, who was, as many people during the Scottish Enlightenment, funnily enough, was really into Stoicism. Adam Smith was hugely into Stoicism as well. And, and a number of other eminent Scottish academics during the Enlightenment period were big fans of Stoicism. And Dougal Stewart, in particular, like, wrote very favourably in detail about Stoicism as a, a philosophy of life. And so I wonder if Burns maybe heard about Stoic philosophy in bits and pieces from, from some of his friends and acquaintances. But he would have picked up similar ideas from ancient poetry. And, and so I was kind of immersed in that as a kid in, in in Scottish culture. Not so much from Scottish, you know, religion and theology, but more from the poetry. And then when I began reading the Stoics, it seemed kind of strangely familiar to me in a way, um, because I guess this is where I picked up this influence from. Do you think that by approaching things from a practical point of view, Stoicism is helping especially younger people to access um, ideas and values <clears throat> that might sometimes seem uh, a bit unattractive when they're presented by conventional psychology. For instance, why isn't CBT as popular as stoicism on social media? Yeah, uh, that's a really good point. I, I was looking at one of the, some of the leading pioneers of CBT research are, don't really have a big social media presence. Um It, so it's, it surprises me in a way, but stoicism is big. When I wrote my book on stoicism and CBT, it was aimed for psychotherapists and academics to read. That's who my, I assume my audience was. Um, it, it was an academic publication, not a trade publication. And, you know, I think this came as a shock to my publisher, but uh, psychologists and therapists and philosophers didn't read my book. So it should have been a failure in that sense. Mm. But it sold quite well because laypersons read it, like ordinary people, non-academics, um, non-professionals read it, and it became kind of a self-help book, which wasn't what it was meant to be, which is kind of sums it up in a nutshell. And so for a long time, I felt a little bit disappointed because I thought all these other cognitive therapists are going to get like really into stoicism. And some of my students did, but it didn't really kind of catch fire in the way that I thought it would. I was always puzzled by that. And only recently I've started to find more and more cognitive therapists getting into stoicism and i think my explanation of that by the way is that twofold cognitive therapists are very busy and they have to read a lot of research so i think partly they feel that they don't have that much time to really get in depth into philosophy if it's not something that they've studied and also they have it drummed into them that everything they do has to be evidence-based and so it's always the late even older stuff like Ellis's rational emotive behavior therapy they'll often distance themselves from because it, it seems dated to them and they want to mainly focus on what the current research certainly in the UK um, what the current research is saying so they've got a little bit of a natural their values are a little bit opposed to drawing on something as old as stoicism but as CBT gradually started to be more influenced 
by mindfulness practices in Buddhism, it became a little bit more open to philosophy and, and religion and ancient literature. And so now I find that most CBT practitioners are asking about it. And I think that's driven in a roundabout way, interestingly, by their clients. So off of their own initiative, the therapist didn't go and read the Stoics, but they found that clients were turning up to sessions saying, hey, have you read Ryan Holiday or Massimo Pellucci? I was watching this podcast about Stoicism, and it sounds really similar to all the stuff that you're teaching me about CBT. And so the therapist almost kind of gets embarrassed into thinking, oh, geez, I better go and read some books on Stoicism. And I kind of feel like that's how it's happened, which is kind of cool in a way. Um, In terms of the popularity, I like to say, I mentioned this a moment ago about tattoos, um, but I've never met anyone. And you guys, I'll put this out as a challenge, I always throw the gauntlet down over this and I've never been proven wrong yet. I've never met anyone that has a CBT tattoo. Like I've never met anyone that has Albert Ellis's face tattooed on them or Aaron Beck or a quote from their books or anything like that. Um, but you wouldn't believe how many people have sent me pictures of their stoicism tattoos. There's a couple of people that have got a whole like Pinterest pages um, and websites with collections of photos of stoic tattoos on them, right? Ryan Holiday is a stoic tattoo. So do I. I think Massimo has one as well, right? Now, this might seem like a bit of a weird, silly observation, but it's quite serious because people get into stoicism in a way that they don't get into CBT. CBT is meant to be short-term. Like, you go, you do it, you learn some skills. Either you get better or you don't, and then it's pretty much over. You know, there's a bit more to it than that. You're meant to maintain your improvement over the long term. But CBT does not proffer itself as a philosophy of life. CBT is not a yoga, not as normally understood. Um, But Stoicism is a philosophy of life. It's like a Western yoga or a Western Buddhism. And so people identify with it at a deeper, lifelong level. It's part of how they see themselves. Like they say, I'm a Buddhist or I'm a Stoic. Like... And and CBT, for a number of reasons, cannot and does not present itself as doing that. But nevertheless, it's very closely aligned with the philosophy that can offer to provide people with uh, a whole worldview and a a permanent um, movement with which they they might align themselves or identify themselves. And that's why they go and get a tattoo or a T-shirt or whatever, you know, but they wouldn't think of doing that um, with CBT. Uh, by the way, another observation I'd make about this that I made right at the beginning when I began writing about this subject is that people read books on CBT and then they they usually don't reread them that much. So they'll read Feeling Good by David Burns or um, Russ Harris's uh, The Happiness Trap. Or, and these are great books and they're best-selling books. But people don't keep reading them every year. They don't you know, they don't quote them from memory that much. Um, whereas Meditations of Marcus Aurelius in particular, people read over and over again. They have favorite quotations from it. And it's partly because it's beautifully written. Um, you know, only less than 1% of Stoic writing survive today. And it's the creme de la creme in a sense that survives. History has curated the most memorable and best written. You know, I, I think people underestimate uh, a couple of things about the ancient Stoics, you know, some of the other books that are lost, we have fragments of, and they're kind of a little bit dry by comparison, right? Not all the ancient Stoics were great writers. Seneca, 
um, was a celebrity writer during his lifetime. He was a, an expert on rhetoric. His father was a rhetoric professor. He was a professional speechwriter. So it's no coincidence that people like to quote him and that his writings are survived for thousands of years. Marcus Aurelius, although he was a Roman emperor, um, studied rhetoric for decades in Greek and Latin under the two leading rhetoricians of his era. Um, so Marcus was a highly experienced, highly skilled, very thoroughly trained writer. Although the book we have by him is lots of little fragments, he was capable of writing very elaborate speeches and very skilled at it. So again, it's no coincidence that people find him so quotable, like he's had decades of training. And even Epictetus was not a rhetorician, but Epictetus wrote nothing. The discourses of Epictetus and the Enchiridion were written by one of his students called Ariane, who was a highly accomplished Roman statesman, military commander, and writer, a very prolific writer. Um, so again, like we, it would be like if Shakespeare wrote a book on CBT. You know, we have these literary classics, and and so people love them and identify with them, and the quotes remain with them for the rest of their life, which is something that, sadly, until one day we have someone who's both. Shakespeare and the CBT practitioner, but that doesn't quite exist. You know, psychologists generally don't produce these uh, writers of the same caliber, like as uh, as Seneca, for instance, or or Cicero. Uh, How do you think um, that an approach based on Stoicism could change how we see psychology today and how it might be approached um, in the future as well? Well, in a number of ways. So to follow on from what uh, I was saying, psychotherapy, I always, I trained psychotherapists and I've trained and worked in many different modalities of therapy. And and usually when you go that deep into a subject and people ask you, what would you do differently or what do you think would change? You'll tend to give an answer that people don't expect that seems, you know, to kind of cut more deeply towards the heart of things. So rather than moving the dictures around on the Titanic, you know, or kind of fiddling around the edges of the subject, I would rip out the guts of psychotherapy and completely change the whole way it works potentially. So psychotherapy is a product of the industrial revolution in the sense that the idea that someone would train as a therapist and then just like sit in a consulting room with one client at a time is a kind of artifact in a way, it's not necessarily um, the best way to do therapy with people. It's just the way that the profession has evolved over time. Um, and one of the limitations of it that seems glaringly obvious is that everyone knows in medicine in general, prevention is better than cure. But psychotherapy is remedial, not preventative. Like uh, you wait until someone is depressed and then they go and see a therapist normally or until their phobia becomes unbearable and then they go and see a therapist. Um, And clearly it would be better if we had the preventative approach to mental health. And uh, therapy is also almost untenably expensive Um to pay for someone to spend many hours one-to-one with a client, especially as mental health problems are an epidemic today. 
uh, it's not really viable. And and the NHS, for example, realizes that. That's why more funding has gone into online uh, courses, uh, set the use of self help, um, uh, group therapy, because they're more financially viable. It's never going to be viable to pay for one to one individual sessions for everybody in the country. Basically, you know, um, it's just not really a realistic model. But if we could work with groups, if we could use more self help and online approaches, use audio recordings and videos more and uh, adopt a more preventative approach. That would be what I like to call the holy grail of -hmm. mental health, that prevention is better than cure. Now, stoicism potentially offers a more preventative long-term alternative to CBT. And that's partly, like I said earlier, about the fact that people memorize stoic literature because it's more, the writing quality is better. It's it's better quality. They quote it all the time. It's because it provides a whole framework, so they identify with it like it's their yoga or their Buddhism. And so, because they identify with it, it becomes more of a permanent fixture in their life. We know that one of the problems in CBT is, that especially if you teach people particular skills, they'll often use those skills for months, maybe years, but then they stop using them eventually, and potentially just kind of relapse into bad habits Mm -hmm. so to train people in psychological resilience based on cbt the challenge is making it sticky or permanent otherwise you have to keep doing booster sessions every year every two years to keep the skills fresh but stoicism seems like it holds out the promise of something that would change their character change their outlook in a more lasting way and i think one reason for that is that because of the way that therapy works as a profession you normally have a therapist in a room with a client and they have to operate within certain boundaries. So therapists must not indoctrinate clients into particular moral values, right? Um, And that makes perfect sense. You know, we have to be very careful to maintain neutrality. But I always thought there's a paradox about that because maybe it's the client's values that are actually the root cause, in a sense, of many of their problems, so, for instance, people, I, I specialized in treating social anxiety. So when we work with clients with social anxiety, we might be working at the level of assumptions they have about their appearance, um, assumptions they make about what other people are thinking of them, um, patterns of thinking that they're engaged in, the, even the way they focus their attention or behave in a social situation. But it struck me that in order to feel social anxiety, to a large extent, you have to care very strongly about what other people think of you. And I notice that some people just don't care that much about other people's opinions of them or not in the same way. And as I was reading the Stoics, I noticed the Stoics' way of addressing this was to say, why should you place more value on other people's opinions of you than you do upon your own opinion about your behavior? Or at the very least... Why place so much value on the opinion of people who you don't respect? If you're going to place value on other people's opinions, why not identify people who you believe exhibit wisdom and focus on their opinion of you rather than people that you think are foolish and be upset about their opinion of you? Shouldn't you be more selective 
about the opinions that you place a value, uh, such value on. But that's really digging deeper and getting to the level of somebody's underlying value system and maybe even a, a, what you could call a kind of meta-ethical um, view about are any external events, uh, sh- should uh, should any external events be assigned that kind of value or that much value, um, especially relative to our way of coping or our attitude towards them? You know, should there be more value placed on someone else's opinion of me than I place on my own ability to cope uh, with social situations, for instance. You know, maybe, you know, the way that I deal with situations, whether I deal well or badly or wisely or foolishly with them is more important um, than the outcome. If I make a mistake, for example, or whether people praise me or criticise me. So that doesn't mean that those uh, feedback, for, incidentally, is completely irrelevant. It just means that um, it sh- we shouldn't be upset about it or uh, catastrophize about it or be depressed about it. You know, We should be able to take it uh, on board uh, and care about things without getting highly upset about them, perhaps. Now, you can instill values like that arguably in a normal therapy session, or certainly it's a grey area, it's a problem uh, for therapy. Therapists increasingly now do work with clients' values. They didn't work with so much with them in the past. Now they do work more explicitly with values, but it raises some challenges for them. Um, interestingly, I saw an article recently by a guy who's a philosophy professor who had CBT and uh, he really struggled with the way that the CBT practitioner was doing values clarification with him because he thought it was very philosophically naive, right? It's kind of like teaching your grandma how to suck eggs. This guy was an expert on ethics. Like, and it was like the, this therapist's idea about values is just like made, making him, him roll his eyes or whatever. But, you know, if values are really that important in terms of shaping our emotions, and it seemed obvious to me that they were, Maybe philosophy is in a better position to help us think them through and address them. Now, Stoicism does actually advocate for a particular set of values, it has to be said. But they're values that are to be uh, accepted on the basis of, of reason, not on the basis of faith. So Stoicism doesn't say you must accept these values. It simply says you should think about your values. And if you do, you may arrive at the same conclusion that we do. We like These are the conclusions that we've arrived at. Um, about the nature of values and uh, the you know the the type of values that are uh, most important. So if stoicism can address values, I think it, that's partly why it's able to transform us at a deeper level and a more permanent level. You know, if that's true, CBT may be confined to operating at a sense of cognitively more superficial level um, to some extent. Even though books written by Stoics, such as Meditations that you mentioned by Marcus Aurelius, um, have been studied and used for many years by leaders um, or even soldiers in the trenches during the, the First World War, what makes them um, what make them particularly relevant to our era now and to crises that we're going through, such as pandemics, uh, the cost of living crisis? or dealing with wars in an unstable geopolitical context, for instance? 
Well, let me back up and talk about something really, it's going to seem really simple and really fundamental, and then I'll expand from there. Again, this time goes on as I get more long in the tooth. Uh, in some ways, the way I look at things seems more fundamental to me, but also in a sense seems simpler. I think often people don't see the wood for the trees when they're looking at something as complex as an ancient philosophy. One of the fundamental concepts in all Greek philosophy, uh, certainly in Socrates and in the Stoics, so fundamental, uh, so basic, is the distinction between appearance and reality. So the Greeks, early Greek thinkers, realised that appearances can be misleading. Um, And they were very concerned with this. The natural philosophers believed that often people were confused about the way that natural phenomena like earthquakes uh, happen or solar eclipses happen. And they tried to get beyond the appearances to a deeper understanding of what was actually happening in nature. And this idea that appearances often frequently mislead us and that reason is the tool that we need to use to get under appearances or behind them um, became integral to all philosophy, not just in studying nature, but in studying man and studying ethics um, as well and studying psychology. And uh, one of the areas where Socrates is believed to have innovated is that he initially studied natural philosophy but became disillusioned with it and people say it was Socrates that introduced the focus on ethics. Other people talked about ethics but Socrates is known for really being the first person to systematically apply the dialectical method to ethical questions and particularly questions concerning the nature of virtue. So in that area um, appearance and reality is again an important distinction Because, for example, in many different ways, but for example, someone might appear to be your friend. um, But if you dig deeper, you might realize that they're behaving like an enemy in reality. If you try to help other people, you might realize, as many parents do and teachers do, that what appears to be helping other people might actually be harming them. Like if you think more deeply about it Um, and what appears at first to be harmful might actually be beneficial on reflection, uh, often when you think about the longer-term consequences. So the classic example in the ancient world was if you go to a physician and you have surgery that's painful, like maybe you, let's say dentistry is a good example, you have to get a tooth yanked out in the ancient world. Now that seems bad, like, because it's painful. Like, but actually maybe in the longer term, it's going to alleviate you from more suffering. Like, so is it a cause of suffering or as a cause of alleviating suffering, it appears at first glance superficially like to be a painful and bad thing. But in closer inspection, we endure what appears painful or appears harmful because we believe that longer term it's actually going to be in our interests, it's going to benefit us. Now, Socrates thought this is a good approach. Like, you know, we can do this over and over again in many different areas of life. Um, looking more deeply uh, beyond appearances. But very quickly, he realized there was a category of individuals who were doing something quite contrary to this and actually using the misleading power of appearance, uh, using the misleading power of passions, feelings, pleasures, and pains to manipulate large groups of people. And those people... During Socrates' lifetime, 
assumed the title of sophist, wise man or expert, and they were some of the richest people in the ancient world. They became extremely wealthy as celebrity speakers, um, and they used rhetoric and persuasion skills to manipulate the emotions, to instill fear and anger and other strong emotions in their audience in order to manipulate them by using the, the power of appearance, by using emotions. Um, and Socrates thought often that, that what the sophists are saying isn't really true. Um, and sometimes they're encouraging people to do things that are foolish rather than wise um, because they're working at the level of appearance and persuasion. And I thought that was really interesting stuff when you're reading Socrates, when you're reading the Stoics. Um, during Socrates' lifetime, the, the sophists were very influential, but uh, in the Roman Empire, there was a resurgence of interest in Greek culture, which we call the Second Sophistic. So Greek intellectuals came to Rome, and there was this uh, renaissance of uh, sophistry uh, under the Roman Empire. Hadrian, for example, you know, surrounded himself with uh, sophists and uh, kind of aspired to be one in a sense himself. And I then I thought, well, that's all interesting, but you know, they're all dead. I thought, and then I gradually over time I realised that they're not. I I realised that in the modern world through social media, we're really bombarded with pretty much the same thing. We are faced with pretty much the same problem that the news media, social media influencers, um, in a more sophisticated way, are doing the same thing that this office were doing. So social media influencers will go on the internet and scour it for controversies that are trending, like, and then they'll make programs about it. And they won't do any research on whether it's true or false. Uh, for example, Alex Jones's uh, lawyer said this recently in court. Like, so I normally kind of be careful, cautious what I attribute to other people, but his own lawyer said that this was his method in court. They, he didn't do any research on uh, the truth or falsehood of the stories he was reporting. He just looked at how controversial they were and if they were trending. Um, so amplified conspiracy theories and things like that because he knew that it would get attention. And so social media influencers will say things that upset people and provoke fear and anger because they know it captivates attention and it creates more publicity. And so they make more money as a result of doing that. Same as the sophists in the ancient world. Like you quickly realize if you're speaking to an audience of a large audience of people, if you tell them something that's true, but kind of boring, they won't come back. But if you tell them something that's not entirely true, but it makes them really mad and kind of gets them really worked up, like then your audience is going to get bigger and bigger. And Socrates thought this is like a drug. Like you guys are like high on the crack of like, you know, spreading conspiracy theories and, you know, whipping up the audience because you, you're getting gratification from it. And and so once you're hooked into that, you're going to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And the lies get bigger and bigger and bigger. Like, and the manipulation gets worse and worse and worse. And it's, it's dangerous because the politicians got in on the act as well in the ancient world. So I think we're kind of living through the third sophistic in a sense. Uh, but it, they're cyber sophists now. And Socrates was concerned that the ancient orators literally competed against each other. They would give speeches and then have a contest to see who got the biggest round of applause, right? Social media 
uh, algorithms reward uh, content that gets the most likes or most engagement in the same way. So Socrates would say, "It's not like it's not the truth isn't a popularity contest." You know, like you guys are just inevitably now going to start adapting what you say to be whatever you think is going to get the biggest reaction from you. So truth has gone out the window completely. You know, you're now just selling out, basically, like and uh, like you know, p- appealing to your your audience's prejudices. Like social media works in exactly the same way. So people end up in bubbles, you know, where they're hearing more and more stuff amplifying their existing prejudices. Um, and it's really, you know, the ancient philosophers saw that that was an inherently toxic framework. Um, and that, I think, people are fed up with it, right? You know, I think once a situation gets bad enough, you know, even though initially people are duped by it, they gradually start to realize that something's not quite right. I think more and more people now are realizing we're at the stage where people realize that there's something toxic about social media um, and the news media today and the network, the way social media influencers sometimes spread news and distort it and conspiracy theories and stuff, the lack of accountability, the lack of research, like, um, you know, the way that they benefit from uh, hyping up audiences and spreading spirit, fear and anger and stuff. But I think we're at a stage where people don't know what to do about it. They think, this this sucks, but what do we do about it? And, you know, I think that's why they're beginning to turn to Stoicism. They have an inkling that ancient philosophy might be able to help in some way. Now, initially in the ancient world, people were drawn to philosophy because the promise of therapy and resilience. They thought it would help them cope with their distress. And that's why people are drawn to it today. But as they got deeper into philosophy, they realized, that philosophy taught them critical thinking skills that could they taught logic and dialectic um, and ways that could help protect them against persuasion. It taught them common logical fallacies um, and it taught them not to use fallacies like the rhetoricians do, but to be able to see through them, like to disarm the enemy, basically, to disarm the sophists like by understanding their tricks and so on. And I, I think we're not at that stage yet. Like, but I hope that people that are drawn to Stoicism and other ancient philosophy because of its therapeutic value will dig deeper into it and begin to appreciate um, the role of dialectic in ancient philosophy as a, another type of preventative, as something that could potentially inoculate us against the baneful effects of sophistry on social media. Could you remind us of the, the main Stoic principles and where do you think they can be found today in modern times? Uh, could you think of specific examples uh, from public figures or groups, maybe um, groups of people displaying the use of Stoic values today? I don't find it easy to identify public figures who exemplify Stoicism for the simple reason that many people who are prominent in public life are more like the sophists. Like um, people rise to fame partly because they cultivate a public image and things like that. So it's not the best place to look for Stoics, funnily enough. Um, If I was being, people used to ask me, you know, like who's a good example of a famous politician that's a Stoic and things like that. And that question troubled me. And then I realized, actually, the best thing to do is to explain why I find that a troubling question. 
And the answer is that if I'm honest, the people that inspire me the most, that I genuinely think exhibited the most stoic characteristics, um, actually were recovering alcoholics or drug addicts that I've met over the course of my life, like more like people who had hit rock bottom um, or other people that maybe had been bankrupt or whatever. Specific individuals I can think of are not famous celebrities or politicians, but people who often lived in relative poverty and and had lived a fairly humble life. I I guess arguably like Diogenes the Cynic or Socrates were kind of known for living a more humble lifestyle and who didn't aspire to be famous, um, but had maybe even, um, you know, done things that they regret. Actually, in some cases, people that served time in prison and people who have radically rethought their values and their outlook on life and transformed themselves. So many drug addicts, alcoholics and, and criminals are not transformed in that way, but a small handful of them are. And they come out of it, in my view, stronger, better than people who have never hit rock bottom in their life and more authentic. And they have the air of authenticity often about them um, and down to earthness that, that, celebrities and gurus lack in many cases. So the, the truth is, those are the people that I think of. They're anonymous individuals um, that, you know, live on council estates and small towns in Scotland and, and England, not, you know, guys that are all over social media, like, you know, living a million-dollar lifestyle um, and stuff like that. You know, I... I, I Most of the guys that are contemporary self-improvement gurus, uh, particularly as they become more and more famous, seem to me to resemble the sophists more and more. Mm -hmm. Um, Just as an aside, something that I think is, I'll mention it because I think it's so important. There's an odd danger to self-help and self-improvement, which is that sometimes self-help advice is contains bad psychological advice, just straight up bad advice, and that's a, that's an issue. It's kind of hit and miss at times. Um, but there's a deeper and more subtle problem, which is that sometimes the advice is okay, or even maybe good advice, but it's the it, it's advice in the wrong area. Um, imagine that your garden shed is burning down. And you're desperately trying to put the fire out with grabbing buckets of water and stuff, right? It's a big deal. It's a catastrophe, right? You've got to put your shed is burning down. Um, and I come along and I'm grabbing your arm, saying, "Dude, like you, like you, you need to stop doing that." And you say, "But, but the water is helping to put the fire out, and there is a fire here. It's really important that I do something about it." And I say, "Yeah, but your turn around, like your whole house is burning down behind you. Like it'd be more important." to put out the fire in your house than to put out the fire in your garden shed, right? And I, that's what I feel a lot of the self-help and self-improvement discussion online is like. So people are doing genuine self-improvement, therapeutic or self-help stuff, but it's focused in completely the wrong area in many cases. And that's bound to happen, sadly, because when people have psychological problems, they typically have cognitive biases that are blind spots, that prevent them from noticing. Now, the biggest one the Stoics realize is anger, right? 
anger by its very nature is an externalizing emotion. When people feel anxious or depressed, they usually blame themselves. And they often they, they use self-help or they seek therapy. But angry people seldom self-refer for treatment. They're more often referred by their spouse or in an institution. Prison inmates would be referred for anger management or students in a school or um, personnel in the military might be referred by other people for anger management. But people with anger management usually don't, off their own initiative, refer themselves, except in exceptional cases, because the nature of it. Now, suppose you take away therapists and you take away other people and you just have a massive, like today, an explosion of self-help, self-improvement literature online. People with anger problems are going to do every type of self-improvement under the sun except anger management. Like, you know, and I don't think it's any coincidence that what we're seeing are evolving communities based around self-improvement populated by large numbers of angry young men in particular who are attracted to sophists or self-improvement gurus who are fueling their anger often by encouraging them to blame women or minorities or hypothetical bogeymen. Um, so I'm thinking in particular of individuals like Andrew Tate and also to some extent of Jordan Peterson, um, but a number of other modern self-help gurus who seem to me to be essentially sophists who trade on fueling fear and anger in their audience and then cultivate an audience of people who need therapy more than anyone else like, and are getting angrier like, instead of getting better. Um, there's something wrong there. It, in, it, it seems, in a sense, it's obviously wrong. Andrew Tate's followers took to the street in Athens a few weeks ago and protested. You know, they were almost rioting in the streets. You know, why is, if this is a self-improvement approach, why is it doing nothing for their anger and aggression? Um, because partly because it's actually feeling it and trading on it, but also because those people know that there's something wrong with their lives, but they can't figure out that the problem is anger. You know, instead, what they're doing is blaming other people. Um, and so, the, you know, someone, when you're angry and you don't realize that you, your girlfriend's dumped you because you're bitter and angry and hateful and, you know, like that, that's, you, you've lost your job because you're angry and bitter and irritable and stuff like that someone needs to tell you like you what people need is a wake-up call normally in a therapy setting the therapist can help by pointing people to their blind spots but when people aren't in therapy like they're just seeking help online you know those blind spots aren't addressed and they just get bigger and bigger and bigger um until in extreme cases you get people in in some of these communities actually committing acts of domestic terrorism in the most extreme case you know and there's an irony that some of the people recently who have committed horrific acts of uh, domestic terrorism are, are people who believed that they were members of therapeutic or self-improvement communities mm. how's that for a paradox um but actually this has always happened throughout history in a sense the sophists you know encouraged people uh, often to end up doing quite violent and antisocial things um, do, do you feel that there's a sort of a clash of different philosophy, philosophies 
still to this day? And did you think Stoicism, if it was the, the prevalent um, philosophy in today's society, that would be helpful for for everyone? I don't know if it would help everyone, not because I think Stoicism is is kind of limited or wrong, but I think the way it's communicated doesn't necessarily appeal to everybody. One of the things the Stoics said was they believed that there was a, Stoicism was kind of a, almost like a perennial philosophy. And, you know, the, the Stoics, so Seneca quotes Epicurus. They quote many other philosophers. Um, they quote poets in mythology because the Stoics believed if our philosophy is right, we can't be the only people that have ever thought of this. Like, so they expected to find fragments of similar ideas everywhere in the culture and in foreign cultures as well. And so they did. They, they, they quote myths and poetry and say, this guy's figured out something similar. Like, of course he has. Like, because, you know, we're, what we're talking about is real. You know, and if we're confident it's real, we'd expect other people to have noticed it as well. They thought they'd articulated it more clearly and more consistently than other people in their philosophy. Um, but it may be, you know, that some people uh, are more drawn to religion uh, or uh, like Judeo-Christian uh, stuff or to Buddhism or Hinduism, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I think the Stoics would expect that. And they'd say they're getting their similar ideas maybe. You know, like we're kind of in agreement, not on everything, but on some things. They're just finding it in a different tradition that maybe appeals to them a little bit more. You know, maybe this guy just likes incense, like, you know, and this other dude, you know, likes likes gladly Roman gladiators and, and legionaries and, and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, you know, there's some differences in the philosophy, but maybe they're getting a lot of the same ideas. If if you take the Zen Buddhism for instance, you, you find a, a lot of similarities, I think, with the Stoicism. And then I think so. That's that's one particular religion. I'll just say something to freak out your audience a little bit. Like you know, the uh, Alexander the Great um, is to blame for many things, but Alexander the Great, uh, like a generation or so before Stoicism was founded, conquered Persia and the uh, the north of india uh greeks uh, began to colonize and so greek culture spread all through the east and alexander reputedly took several philosophers with him and one was a guy called piro of ellis who was the founder of the greek skeptical philosophy he also took a cynic philosopher with him and uh we don't know this for sure but there, there certainly there was contact in the ancient world between East and West. It's pretty limited um, and intermittent, but it happened. There's one ancient source that claims that Socrates spoke with an Indian uh, merchant, um, but it's a kind of later source. It's of dubious reliability, but it's plausible. Uh, some people, there are a number of books. There's about two or three books recently that people have written about the possible connection between Hinduism, Buddhism, and uh, the Western philosophical tradition running both ways. Um, the most likely candidate is Greek scepticism, like, that many people have said seems like a Western version of Buddhism and, and may actually have had some kind of historical connection. Um, and equally in the East, there, there's evidence that one of the, the Buddhist scriptures is called The Questions of King Melanda, 
and it's a dialogue between a Buddhist monk and uh, uh, a Hellenistic uh, ruler. Um, so the, there was some influence of Greek philosophy and culture uh, on Indian religion and philosophy as well. So it's no surprise that these things have similarities. They're not entirely separate traditions. And, and also, I would say, maybe, and I'll now add something that's controversial in a different way. When Westerners read uh, Asian uh, philosophy, they, it seems to me, inevitably translate it into their own cultural norms and concepts. And so I, I felt, as a young guy, I remember vividly feeling, I studied Buddhism also at university, instantly in Hinduism. I studied the Bhagavad Gita and uh, the Upanishads and the, uh, 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 the Dhammapada and so on. The it really kind of seemed to me that often Westerners were unconsciously drawing on Greek philosophical concepts that they'd kind of, like like I'd picked up from Rabbi Burns, for example, without even realizing that it was Epicureanism or Stoicism that was kind of filtering down to me. And then I'd read Buddhist stuff and I'd kind of tr- connect the two and translate it. I'd, I, I would maybe as a young guy, I thought, Jesus, Robbie, is Rabbi Burns a Buddhist or something? What's all this stuff about impermanence, right? Yeah, that's a good example, right? Pleasures are like poppy spread, you seize the flower, it's blemish. Is, is this guy a Buddhist? This sounds like the Buddhist doctrine of impermanence, right? But I didn't know that that was... Um, the Heraclitean concept of uh, Pantare, like everything flows, and um, you know that this concept of impermanence is a central part of uh, European philosophy, and that's probably where Burns got it from. But I'm, you know, I think we all, without realizing that we're doing it, translate uh, concepts into ones that we're more familiar with. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything you'd like to add to this conversation? I think the only thing is I should give a little plug for the Plato's Academy Centre if people are interested. It's the non-profit that I founded them, the president of it. It's based in Athens in Greece. And our goal is to build a, an international conference centre uh, at or adjacent to the original location of Plato's Academy. And we've been up and running for just over a year now. We run virtual events that are free of charge. We've got one coming up pretty soon on how philosophy could restore civility and rationality to political debate. So people might want to check that out because it's a a non-profit, it's a philanthropic uh, project. And it's largely what we do is free of charge. We funded by donation. Um, So the website is platosacademy.org. And if people want to go there and find out about it and maybe come along to one of our online events. Do you have uh, anything going on in Scotland at the moment? Um, the Modern Stoic, I think it's your it's the group you created. How does that work and is it international or not yet? I was one of the founders of Modern Stoicism, which is an international organization. The chair originally was Christopher Gill and the current chair is John Sellers. Um, are both well-known academics that write about Stoicism. And it runs Stoic Week, which is an annual online e-learning course event. And it runs Stoic On, which is an annual 
conference, which takes place either online during the pandemic or it's happened in London and Toronto and New York and, and Athens, different cities around the world. Um, I'm not aware of anything going on specifically in Scotland. There is a Scotland Stoics group that meets sometimes. Um, I don't think there's a conference in Scotland, but there are events sometimes that happen in England, in London, for example. Mm-hmm. So if people search online, maybe go to the Modern Stoicism website, like uh, they might find information about events that are happening in their area. Right. Amazing. Um, thank you so much for accept- accepting to take part in this conversation, Donald. Hope we can do Thanks. this again soon. Yeah. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure.